My mom got her first COVID shot this past weekend, and I almost cried. I hadn't realized just how much my anxiety about her health during the pandemic had gnarled itself into my subconscious. When I saw her text that, yes, she'd gotten her first dose, something inside me that had been wound tightly for over a year finally relaxed. Of course, my first thought was, when can I see her? Her birthday's coming up and I would really love to celebrate together. But if she's fully vaccinated and I'm not, can we hang out as we usually would? Public health officials have stressed that we still should take precautions, even after vaccination. But what does that mean in practice? Part of my confusion has been around the main goal of vaccination. The gospel for months has been vaccinations prevent transmission, which gets us to herd immunity. In my mind, that meant we'd be able to eradicate the virus, wipe it off the face of the earth, or at least eliminate it from many parts of the world. But increasingly, scientists have been saying that we may not reach herd immunity, at least not in a sustainable way. Now, that doesn't mean we're doomed, but it has got me thinking about what the end game is for this virus. If sustained herd immunity isn't the goal, what does that mean for life after the shot? Does it change how my mom and I should interact? That's what we're exploring on the show today. And stay tuned for a scientist's guidance on when you can all go out and hug your parents and friends. I'm Anna Rothschild, and you're listening to Podcast 19 from 538. Jenny Levine is an infectious disease researcher at Emory University who loves explaining herd immunity. This has become one of my favorite things in life, actually. So as a quick reminder. Herd immunity happens when you are no longer able to introduce an infection and have it spread. When enough members of a group are immune because they've already had the disease or they've been vaccinated, then... There are not enough people that are susceptible in the population to sustain transmission of virus. So like a, a light switch that you flick up and down to turn on and off, herd immunity is kind of like you've gotten to the point where you've flicked it down, right? Like it's off. You're not going to get anything to happen anymore. This is an important point. With herd immunity, you haven't just dimmed transmission, you've effectively shut it off. While a disease could still pass from one susceptible person to another, so many people would already have immunity that an outbreak in the population would be nearly impossible. Now, flicking off that light switch isn't easy, but it can be done. Through widespread vaccination, we totally eradicated smallpox around the globe. But that's the only human disease we've ever fully eradicated. In the US, we've largely eliminated certain childhood illnesses like measles and polio. But when people get the measles or polio vaccines, then they have pretty much lifelong immunity. And that is the key difference. So SARS-CoV-2, it does not seem like we're gonna have that lifelong transmission blocking immunity. We're getting more and more evidence that the COVID vaccines not only prevent severe illness, but significantly reduce transmission, too, though we're not yet sure by exactly how much. We also don't know how long immunity lasts, either from a COVID infection or from the vaccine. So even if we did vaccinate enough people to reach herd immunity, it's unclear how long that protection would last. 
After all, we know it's possible to get other types of coronaviruses multiple times. All this makes Levine skeptical that we'll ever sustain herd immunity. She thinks it's more likely that the virus will become endemic, meaning that SARS-CoV-2 would be basically always present in the population, and it might fluctuate seasonally or something like that, but it never fully goes away. What are some diseases that are endemic? Well, so influenza is endemic. The four human coronaviruses are. Those are the ones that cause the common cold. That's a small, tiny little fraction of the viruses that are endemic in human populations. We coexist very happily with lots and lots of viruses. How is endemicity different than what we're seeing now with this epidemic of COVID-19? In an epidemic, you get in some one year a giant peak of cases and then something different happens in the following years. So that's why I would say right now we're in a pandemic. We're getting these huge peaks of cases all around the world, more or less. But if COVID were instead endemic... It, it will still be everywhere, but it'll just be mild fluctuations from year to year in how many cases there are. Now, just because a disease is endemic doesn't mean it isn't dangerous. But based on what we know about other coronaviruses, Levine and her colleagues think that COVID becoming endemic might actually be a way out of the danger zone. What did the endemic coronaviruses look like when they first emerged? Is it possible that they would also cause severe disease if you got them for the first time in your life as an adult? We don't know the answer because we always get them for the first time as kids. Levine is suggesting that the common cold viruses might once have been just as dangerous to adults as COVID-19 is. But today, since everyone's first exposure to those viruses is in childhood, they're no longer a big deal. At some point in the future, the only people getting exposed to COVID for the first time will be babies and young kids, because everyone else will have already gotten sick or vaccinated. In this way, COVID might just become another common cold. Again, this is a hypothesis, but it's not a totally crazy idea. Take the story of OC43. Which is one of the endemic human beta coronaviruses. So in the same little subfamily as SARS-CoV-2. It's one of the common colds we've all had at some point. And about 10 years ago, a group of scientists did some genetic studies to figure out when OC43 emerged in humans. Their best guess ends up being around the turn of the 20th century, so late 1800s. They also find that it seems likely that it came from sort of the Europe region. And interestingly, at that same time, there was a pandemic that was called the Russian flu. And it was a respiratory virus. Like, it kind of seemed like a thing that made you cough and sneeze and have trouble breathing. And more recently, people have started to wonder if perhaps that Russian flu was actually the emergence of OC43. This is exactly the sort of science mystery I adore. It's pretty darn fun. <laughs> I, I love that story. I mean, listen, again... We know it might just it might not be true, but I love the idea that that could be what was going on. If that's the case, it's a pretty optimistic future for SARS-CoV-2. It would say, yeah, it caused a really big problem that even over a hundred years later, we can see excess deaths from from records that were kept from way back in the 1890s. It was really, really bad. But you know what? By the time all of us are around, 
it was just another cold virus that like our kids got when they went to kindergarten. So I'm hopeful that that might be a, um, a little premonition of what's to come. When might we reach endemicity for SARS-CoV-2? That's the million dollar question. If in the best case scenario, a primary infection or vaccination will lead to really, really strong and long-lasting disease-reducing immunity. That's totally plausible, but we don't know for sure whether it's true. If that's true, I think a year from now, we could easily be in a much, you know, in a, in a place where this wouldn't be a big deal anymore. At this point, we don't know if our way out of the pandemic looks exactly like Levine has described, but multiple scientists I spoke with have now told me that we're simply not eradicating our way out of this thing. I do think it probably will become endemic, but I think that one of the things um, we can try to do, we can't eradicate it from the world, but let's try to eradicate it from a setting like, say, nursing homes. That's Dr. Katherine Stevenson, an infectious disease specialist and a vaccine scientist at Harvard Medical School. You might remember her. She's been on the show before. What for you does the end game look like? What, what does this virus look like in the future for us? Probably for many years, I would say three to five years, is going to be something that we're going to have to think about intentionally every all the time. We're going to think about making sure that everyone who's vulnerable stays vaccinated, that people are getting boosted with vaccines, that we work tirelessly for access and equity with these vaccines, um, and that if people, that there are going to be people who get sick from this for, for years to come, but that the end game for me is to convert it back to what we're somewhat used to where we don't shut down our schools and um, our restaurants and our workplaces, where we don't have um, our hospitals stretched to the absolute limit or people unable to come into the hospital for other conditions. That, that's the end game for me, is to get us back to what we're used to with other viruses that, that do circulate. And crucially, we're on track for that. So these vaccines, all of them that have been reported and tested um, have prevented 100% of hospitalizations and 100% of deaths. And importantly, that includes the Johnson & Johnson vaccine also prevented 100% of hospitalizations and deaths. And that's including the fact that it was tested in a setting where a lot of these new variants were circulating. I want to clarify something. You know when you hear that the newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine has an efficacy of 72%? Well, that's how well this vaccine prevents moderate to severe illness. But all three of our vaccines are even better at preventing hospitalizations and death. To reiterate, they prevented 100% of them. Does the fact that we're not globally just going to poof, make this virus disappear from the face of the earth, does that sort of change our goal for the vaccines? Does it make transmission less important and preventing severe disease or hospitalizations more important? Yeah, I think we have a kind of pandemic viewpoint right now. So right now what we're trying to do is to bring down the number of severe cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, because that's what's like literally killing us. 
our first goal with vaccination is to stop that from happening. And I think that our current crop of vaccines are really effective at doing that. Next year, Dr. Stevenson thinks we'll be in a maintenance phase and ask a little more of the vaccines. We're gonna start comparing them. All right, which one is most effective at preventing transmission? Which one is most effective at responding to new variants if they come along? That's what we're gonna be looking for during a more maintenance phase of COVID-19. The goal at this point is not to get rid of the virus, it's to turn it into a common cold. That would be a huge win, I think. The goal is to, to turn it into something that's really livable and not, not something that is really going to impact our lives in the way that it is right now. That's Julia Marcus, an infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. And the third scientist this week who agreed that COVID will probably become endemic. But what about the short term? Over 25 million Americans have already been fully vaccinated. When can we really start living again, even if it means living with the disease? In your recent article in The Atlantic, you noted that in Europe, officials have been promoting the idea that the vaccines will help people get back to their lives as usual. But in the U.S., we're still being told, you know, not to let our guard down even after being vaccinated. So why do you think the messaging has been so different? I think the messaging here in the U.S. has really heavily focused on caution, which is totally appropriate. We are still not out of the woods here. We don't know what the next few months are going to look like. And of course, we don't want vaccinated people to, you know, party like it's 1999. There is a missed opportunity here to really communicate the vast reduction in risk that vaccines provide and to acknowledge that vaccines are actually exactly what's going to get us out of this mess and our, our path back to normal. Marcus told me that some of the messaging, particularly around how much the vaccines reduce transmission, has been so cautious that it may be having the opposite of the desired effect. I think it's important to give people a sense of a spectrum of risk in every situation. And, you know, to say you've gotten this highly effective intervention, but nothing changes for you is a bit misleading when there actually is a true reduction in risk. With that in mind, I ran through a few different post-vaccination scenarios with Marcus to get her take on what people should feel comfortable doing once they've been vaccinated or once a certain number of people around them have been vaccinated. These are all sort of situations that people in my life have been struggling with. Are you down for a little lightning round, maybe? I am. I'm happy to try to provide frameworks for how to think about the risk in these different situations. My dad and uncle have both been vaccinated and they're in their 60s and 70s respectively. And I, I know they would like to know if they could hug. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, you have two people who have been vaccinated. There is very little risk to either of them um, and of getting together and hugging. So I want to be clear that we're not in a zero risk situation, but many people, I think, after vaccination might be comfortable with the, with the amount of reduced risk that we're seeing, would be comfortable hanging out with other people who are also vaccinated. What if only one of them had been vaccinated? How would you navigate that situation? We want to ideally have the vaccinated person be the more vulnerable one in the situation. Meaning that if a child and grandparent are together and only one of them can be vaccinated, 
it's better for the grandparent to be the vaccinated one in terms of reducing overall risk. I want to talk kind of more broadly about like policy calculations that are now being made. In many places in the country, indoor dining is already open, but I know that not everyone feels comfortable doing that at this point. If you have been vaccinated, well, maybe it is kind of a moral question. Like, can you go dine indoors? What are the risks to you? And also, what are the risks to the people around you? In the example you're talking about, some considerations there might not necessarily be about, you know, direct risk to, to unvaccinated people, because again, the vaccinated person, from what we can tell, is likely a much lower risk of transmitting the virus. To me, I think the questions are more about, um, you know, the complexity around creating um, demand for services at a time when workers may themselves not be vaccinated. It's not just about considering your fellow patrons. It's about also considering the people who are working at the restaurant and serving you and who may not have another choice but to come to work, even if they have not been vaccinated. Exactly. From a policy perspective, how many people need to be vaccinated for it to feel safe to like totally reopen indoor dining or, you know, reopen indoor concerts? There's no easy answer to that. But I think that all adults should at least have an opportunity to be vaccinated before we lift all precautions in public setting. But I can't answer the question of, you know, when when is this going to happen? I wish I knew. I've seen some metrics floated around, you know, once we get down to 100 deaths a day, then, then we can just totally open up and we're back to normal. But that's as arbitrary as the six foot rule. I asked that in part because a good friend of mine recently bought indoor concert tickets for May. That's bold. And specifically was was wondering if you thought it would be okay for him to go then. I, I think that's ambitious, but I, I admire his hope and optimism. So children are unlikely to be vaccinated before the fall. At the same time, most teachers will be vaccinated by the spring or summer, in all likelihood. Should we fully reopen in-person education even if children aren't vaccinated? What are your thoughts about that? Between the combination of people having immunity from vaccination and from natural infection, I think we will eventually get to a place, hopefully by the fall, where infection rates are really quite low. And I don't think at that point waiting for children to be vaccinated before they can go back to school would make sense. Given the risk to children, of this infection, which we know to be quite low, and the risks, the competing risks that they face being out of school, I I think it would really, uh, that would not be a reason to keep schools from functioning fully. One of the things we've seen throughout this pandemic is the need for consistent messaging from leaders in order to have policies be effective. What public messaging would you hope governors and other public officials would use to explain the benefits of vaccination while also urging caution in certain areas of life? I think the message we should be conveying is congratulations, you've received a highly effective intervention that is going to keep you safe from hospitalization or death from this infection. And it is likely going to reduce risk to the people around you. Until everyone has a chance to be vaccinated, at least all adults, we need to keep up precautions in public settings. 
in your personal life, know that the risk to, to you and those around you is reduced and make decisions accordingly. What does the end game of this pandemic look like to you? How do we, you know, learn to live with this virus? I think it, it turns into something like a seasonal flu um, or a, a cold that may still have severe outcomes for some people, particularly quite elderly, vulnerable people who, who even now will um, sometimes suffer severe outcomes from a cold. Um, but I think that it becomes something that fades into the background of our lives the way that other infectious diseases often do. and. Um, I, I hope that we all have a really roaring 2022. <laughs> so what am I going to do about my mom's birthday? I'm going to go see her, but we'll still be taking precautions. My mom and I will both quarantine beforehand, which we have the privilege to do since we both work from home. But for the first time in a year, it will be my health that's the primary concern and not hers. And you better believe that we'll hug. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Many thanks to Maggie Kurth for her help with this episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time. So last time we spoke, you had not gotten the vaccine yet. Has that changed? That has changed. I got both doses of the Moderna vaccine. So the first shot, I felt... Um, Almost nothing, actually, to be honest. The second one, it was really weird. I, I just felt completely wiped out. Um, my muscles were hurting me. I didn't want to walk up and down the stairs. I mean, for me, it was a lot of fun. But then um, I fell asleep, and when I woke up, it was all gone. Wait, when you say was, for you it was a lot of fun, are you joking, or are you saying that as a scientist it was actually interesting to, like, watch your feelings? No, like, it was really fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean legitimately fun. <laughs> I I don't ever get to be in my own studies, so I never get to actually feel what it's like. So I, I really did enjoy it. That's amazing. I love that reaction. <laughs> <laughs>